about the backstory of the book of Acts. And get the next slide, uh, please. We, uh, we, we know why to read Acts. We want to know where Acts came from. Well, Acts and the Gospel of Luke are attributed to a chap by the name of, you guessed it, Luke. Who was Luke? Well, if we focus just on the text itself, it's very clear we're, we're dealing with someone who's very keen on Jesus, uh, thinks Paul is pretty good, but has kind of got a bad reputation, and he kind of wants to, you know, you know, clean over Paul's image a little bit. Even Christians are getting a bad rap from, from different peoples. Uh, he's very literate. He, he writes some in, the, in some of the best quality Greek in uh, the New Testament. I mean, the Gospel of Mark is written by someone uh, whose, whose facility in Greek is okay, but it's clearly not their, his first language. But Luke is written in very well-polished Greek, and this is someone who knows how you write serious history, how you write serious biography. Uh, and what we learn from the prologue to both the Gospel of Luke and the prologue to Acts is there is this person, Luke, who from the epistles of Paul we know was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, particularly in the later half of Paul's mission across the Aegean from Asia Minor into Greece and then eventually uh, onwards towards Rome. So he's, he's a traveling companion and he seems to regard himself as a second or third generation Christian. One of the things that tips us off that it was a traveling companion of Paul is from chapter 16 in the book of Acts, the author suddenly moves from talking in the third person to talking in the first person. You get what's called the we passages. He says, and then we came to the city of Troas, and then we came into Macedonia. So you, you get the impression that prior to that point, Luke is using sources, maybe from Paul or from other people and the like, but at that point, he's kind of giving his own first-person eyewitness account as to what happened in the ministry and mission of the Apostle Paul. Uh, a little bit tricky about when Luke and Acts were written, and, and this, is, this is kind of now, this is a little bit of an academic debate, because at the end of the book of Acts, Paul is in Rome, he's made it to Rome, he's still alive, so you might think, well, maybe Acts was written, you know, prior to Paul's death, prior to Paul's martyrdom, which probably happened 66, 67, during the Neronian persecutions, that's, that's you know, some... Um, persecutions of Christians under the Roman Emperor Nero. Maybe Luke's writing before then, but here's the other thing. When Luke writes his gospel, it appears that he uses the gospel of Mark as a template that he follows, and we normally date Mark to about sometime between 65 or 70, sometime around that period. And if Luke is using Mark as a template, that would kind of indicate or imply that maybe Luke and Acts were written a, a bit later. So normally people date Luke and Acts to sometime to between about 80 to 90 AD. Uh, that, that leads to the question, well, why didn't he tell us about the death of Paul? 
If he knew about it, well, there's a few reasons. Maybe he was planning on writing a third volume, but he never got round to it. Uh, maybe the uh, Roman secret police rocked up at that time and took Luke away or something along those lines. Or maybe his purpose is not to document what happened to Paul because the communities or the networks that Luke was writing to already knew the story of Paul's death and martyrdom. Maybe they really wanted to know how the plan and purpose of God took the gospel from Jerusalem in this backwater province on the rim of the Roman Empire all the way to the very epicenter of the Roman Empire. Maybe that is the main purpose of the story. But that, of course, leads us to the question, why is Luke writing this you know, fairly massive two-volume work? Why did he write his gospel? Why did he write the book of Acts? Well, I mean, at one level, you can say he's writing to Theophilus. I think Theophilus is probably his literary patron, someone who's sponsoring his literary endeavours, providing the writing materials, giving him the time and the leisure to invest in this literary project, but he's not just writing for a patron. I think he's writing for a circle of Christians, a network of churches who he believes will be um, edified or instructed or be reassured in their faith. I mean, that's the type of language he says, you know, I write these things to you, Theophilus, so you may be fully assured in the things in which you have been, you know, literally catechized, you know, that you have been instructed in. But what is Luke wanting Theophilus and others to be assured about their instruction in? Well, I, I think there's a number of things. The first of all is the story of salvation. Okay? Luke writes a lot about the theme of salvation. I mean, when you, when you get to the infancy narratives in the Gospel of Luke, where you've got people like Mary, the mother of Jesus, Zechariah, and others, you, you can see a lot going on there. There's this big celebration that God has raised up a horn of salvation. When you get into Jesus' sermon in chapter 4 in Nazareth, a very, a, a very, very important text. I mean, Jesus gives what is literally the shortest sermon you will ever hear. He reads from the book of Isaiah, from Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, set the captives free, bring sight to the blind, all that type of thing. He puts the text down. He gives the shortest sermon ever, which is seven words. Today, these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. Seven words, Greek or English, it's all the same. He kind of sits down. You know, that's the sermon. But that's what he's saying. Salvation has come and it has come now. Jesus is the one who brings the kingdom of God. Okay? But the kingdom of God is not an idealistic concept. The kingdom is present because of the presence of the king of that very kingdom. And it's the works that Jesus does, his healings, his miracles, his exorcisms, are proof that the saving power of God is already present. But that, that kingdom has a, a now, but also a not yet. And we see that same pattern of now and not yet played out across the rest of Luke and Acts, which is why in the book of Acts you get the apostles preaching salvation, God's deliverance, God's rescue for Jews and for Gentiles 
has been made available through Jesus, through his death, and most importantly for Luke, in his resurrection and in his exaltation. I mean, very, very interesting fact I learned from reading the book of Acts is Luke gives far more emphasis to the exaltation of Jesus than he does to the death of Jesus. I mean, he, he does mention the death of Jesus when he says, you know, Jesus was a man attested by God, put to death by people like Pontius Pilate and, and Herod Antipas. But his, his big emphasis is on the exaltation of Jesus because that's the ultimate vindication of Jesus and it's the proof that he is the Messiah of Israel and the Messiah for the world. And this salvation, initially, it's for, it's for Israel. And it's not simply the case that, you know, Jesus offers salvation to Israel as a kind of courtesy. Well, you don't want it, so I'll give it to the Gentiles. And that's what the real mission is about. No, that's not how it goes. Okay? The mission goes to Israel because, as the scriptures say, and this is what Jesus and Paul emphasize, salvation only comes to Israel and through Israel. And the basic plot line, what links the, the Old Testament, the people of Israel to the church, is, is this. A transformed Israel will transform the world. Okay, that, that's, that's the big plot. That, that's what we've got to remember. Okay, that's why the Jewish people, their salvation, their deliverance is so important. It's got to come to and through them. And the story of Israel is continued on in the story of the apostles and the early church. They see themselves continuing the ministry of Jesus, the messianic message that goes out, but not just to Israel, also beyond the world, also beyond others to the world. And, you, and, they, and this, this is a little bit of a shock to them, and it's a little bit of a, bit of a, a rupture in their own expectations indeed, in some cases, even some of their prejudices, when they see the word of God is being accepted by non-Jews, by these, by these Gentiles. And even the Holy Spirit is coming upon them. And you've got to remember, for, for, for a lot of Jewish people, you know, when they thought of, of non-Jews, of the Gentile world, they thought of idolatry, ignorance, immorality, and impurity. Those who were beyond the covenant may be ripe only for judgment. Maybe in the last days the law become proselytes, converts to Judaism and worship God. But the idea that Jews and Gentiles together would be worshipping the one God through his crucified and risen Messiah was not on their bingo card for the year 30 AD. And yet that is what happens in the story of salvation. And as Luke tells it, things begin in Jerusalem, they go into Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now you can see that happen in a different ways, because in chapter 8, Philip meets an Ethiopian eunuch on his way back to Ethiopia. And in the Roman mindset, um, Ethiopia was kind of like the, the bottom of civilization. You know, after that, it was kind of like, and here there be jungles and we don't know what. Okay, so it goes to Ethiopia, it goes into the northeast, up into Macedonia, and then also into Rome. And the, much of the story is focusing how this salvation for Jews, for Gentiles, for all sorts of people, governors, slaves, and everyone in between, how salvation in Christ is offered to them. And, and you might say a really good story that sums it up 
is in chapter 16 of Acts, where there's an earthquake, a whole bunch of the prisoners escape, and this you know, Philippian jailer sees Paul, and, and he says to him, you know, tell me what I must do to be saved. I mean, that's probably a good summary of what the book of Acts is about. What must I do to be saved? So it's a story of salvation. It's a story of mission traversing those various boundaries that separate Jews and Samaritans, Jews and Gentiles, different strata of society. And God's Spirit is poured out on these people indiscriminately. Okay, it, the Spirit comes upon Gentiles, and that's why Peter... Who's, who wants to be a good, faithful Jew, doesn't want to eat unclean foods, wants to obey the Jewish law, the Torah. He has to tell his friends in Jerusalem, you know, I know this is a bit weird, it's not what we're expecting, but they, the Gentiles, have received the same spirit we have. And he says, God has cleansed their hearts by faith. And that's where you get the idea that Jews and Gentiles are both saved by faith. So the story of salvation, the story of mission is all bound up together. At the same time, the book of Acts and also the Gospel of Luke uh, does have something of an apologetic edge to it. You get the feeling that Luke is trying to defend Jesus trying to defend Christians, trying to defend the church, especially Paul, from certain accusations. Now, maybe he's defending Jesus from uh, being accused of being a, you know, a zealous rabble-rouser or just a kind of another Judean bandit, which is why at Jesus' trial in Luke 23, Luke really emphasizes the innocence of Jesus. But Luke is also very interested in talking a lot about Paul. I mean, he gives us the story of Paul's conversion in chapter 9, and then in chapter 21 and in 26, he gives us two further accounts of Paul telling his own testimony. So Luke really labors the point that Paul is just doing what God has called him to do. Okay? He emphasized that Paul is obedient to the Jewish law. He's obedient to his calling to the apostle, to the Gentiles. And he's not the one who's responsible for all the riots or for all the fracas or all the malaise that have happened wherever Paul goes preaching the gospel. The other thing that Luke wants to do is to defend the inclusion of Gentiles in the church not as second-class citizens, not as mere guests, but as equals with Jews in faith in the Messiah. And he he kind of points out how it happened. I mean, it starts out as a very Jewish movement. I mean, Jesus was a Jew. His followers are all Jews. They're all in Jerusalem, the capital of Judea, worshipping God. But eventually this movement expands and spreads to include non-Jews, these, these Gentile figures. And you've got centurions, you've got governors, you've got all sorts of people from the Greco-Roman world are drawn by faith in Christ. And Luke wants to say, though, this is a good thing. This is part of the plan and purpose of God. And this is why at the Jerusalem Council, 
where they're kind of, you know, figuring out what, what, what do we do with all these Gentiles who are coming to faith in Jesus? Because normally we'd want to separate from them or at least keep them at arm's distance or something along those lines. And they say, well, look, you know, Gentiles have come to faith and they can be accepted on the same terms as us. And they should not be urged to ad adopt the Jewish law. In other words, what the Jerusalem Council says is that Gentiles do not have to become Jews in order to be Christians. God accepts Gentiles as Gentiles. They don't have to become proselytes or converts to Judaism. And that shows from the perspective of Peter, Paul, and James that God does not have any favoritism. He accepts everyone who comes to him on the basis of faith. And James backs that up with a quote from the book of Amos chapter 9 when he says, you know, when Israel's kingdom is restored, when there's a new David, that will be the time for the Gentiles to enter into God's promises. So, you know, remember, as I said, a transformed Israel will transform the world. The Jews are meant to be a light to the nations, a kingdom of priests, and Luke is saying, and that's happening through the church. Uh, there is also a little bit of a polemic against some Jews who are hostile to Christianity and indeed some pagan authorities as well. Uh, Luke wants to make clear that whenever there's some sort of fracas or some sort of, you know, riot, uh, normally it's Paul or someone preaching the gospel. There's some local Jews stirring up a bit of a crowd, creating a bit of an episode uh, that gets out of hand. So he's trying to exonerate the, the church from the charge of being you know, rabble-rousers. Uh, he also wants to say to the Roman Empire, you know, through, through the way he, he portrays various officials, is that, I mean, the Romans accuse Christians of being, you know, lawless brigands, always creating a fuss. And Luke is emphasizing that Roman... Roman peace, Roman law, Roman justice isn't really all that just because a number of governing officials are simply indifferent to injustice or they ask for bribes or they really just don't care at all. And he says we're not really a threat to Roman justice because, well, Roman justice isn't really all that just. But he does point out that the Christians can have some good relationships with officials like Sergius Paulus on the island of Cyprus or the centurion called Julius who basically saves Paul from being murdered by a Jerusalem death squad. But perhaps the main thing that Luke, well, maybe polemicizes is, is the right word, but some of the things that Luke wants to um, stress is that the church are the people of God who are following God's plan and purposes in Messiah Jesus, okay? So it's not some radical, weird sect. It's not a breakaway denomination from Judaism. They believe, they are carrying forward the story of Israel. They are, they are the recipients of the promises to Israel in their Messiah. So they're not making a radical break 
with the Jewish hope and heritage. On the contrary, they say they're standing up for it. And, and this is what the apostles Peter and Paul declare time and time again. They say things like, brothers and sisters, we tell you what God has promised for our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us their children by raising the Messiah Jesus from the dead. The church understands themselves, their identity, their mission in this, in this sense of promise and fulfillment. So th that's largely what the, uh, what, why I think Luke wrote the book of Acts and also leading into uh, the gospel of Luke. But we, we can probably break this down a, a bit and talk about the main sections in the book of Acts. So first of all, first major section is chapters 1 and chapter 5, which is the birth of the church. So as you all know, Jesus ascends, and then uh, the Holy Spirit is sent on the great day of Pentecost. I think we got, was it Ascension Sunday this Thursday? Am I right? Is it Ascension? Thursday's Ascension Day. Okay, well, I, I think we need to be MAGA Christians. Make the ascension great again, not the other type of MAGA. Because the ascension is a, a, a big deal. It's emphasized in the book of Acts. It's emphasized in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, the ascension is called an anchor for the soul. Okay, it means God has placed at the helm of the universe the man Christ Jesus. And what Luke uses to emphasize this is Psalm 110, verse 1, okay, which says, uh, Not you are my son, that's Psalm 2. Uh, sit, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He has exalted the Lord Jesus Christ and he is Yahweh's, the God of Israel's vice region. That is strewn throughout the book of Acts. But we've got the, the birth of the church, Pentecost, various sermons given by Peter and the apostles. And now this attracts some pretty big crowds. But on the other hand, it brings some opposition with Jewish leaders, and that opposition is going to ferment further. Uh, but I really love, um, at the end of Acts chapter 2, I think this is the one of the most idealized images of the church. If you look at chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, you have a great picture of the church together, and you get the impression that the church is a community of spirit, word, and sacrament. Now, to have a healthy church, I think Luke is telling us, you need to have all three, okay? Because you can't just say, well, we're going to be a spirit church and kind of ignore the word and don't have anything to do with the sacraments. And you can't just, because if you focus just on the Holy Spirit, then basically you're saying, well, you know, uh, that the church is effectively just a... Uh, a, a kind of, you know, mystical religious experience, and when we turn the fog machine on, that's when God turns up, okay? That, that's not what we're into. We're not just into spiritual mysticism. Uh, but we need the Word as well, and they were dedicated to the, to the teaching of the apostles, but you can't just have the Word alone. If you focus on the Word of God, if you ignore the Holy Spirit, pay lip service to the sacraments, then, to be honest, you've turned the church into a mosque, 
Because Islam is all about word. There is no sacraments or symbols of God's presence with us, and there's no Holy Spirit. But by the same token, if you only have sound bites of the word, if you domesticate the Holy Spirit and just focus on the sacraments, then you've turned into something of a magic show where abracadabra, I make Jesus appear when I put bread and wine on the table. Now, we've got to avoid that because the church is not a mosque. It's not mysticism. It's not a magic show. It is the community at worship in the spirit through the word and celebrating the unity and fellowship that we have through the sacraments. Luke is saying a healthy church has to be a community of spirit, word, and sacrament. But tension is building with the local Jerusalem leaders because they see how popular the church is becoming and the opposition is building. That brings us into the next section, which should be technically 6.1 to 9.31. And this is when there starts to be even some divisions in the church between these Hebrews and Hellenists. So it's not completely an arousing idea. I mean, who could imagine some divisions and differences in the church? I mean, can never imagine such a thing ever happening, can you? So there's divisions between the Hebrews and the Hellenists about the daily distribution of food. And then we get the first martyr of the church, Stephen, as well. He's, he kind of, um, he's a deacon in the church. He preaches a sermon. And what is very interesting, while he's being you know, effectively lynched by a mob, uh, Stephen does something that no one in the early church, as far as we know, has done before. And he doesn't just pray to God through Jesus. He prays directly to Jesus. I mean, in the New Testament, the normally pattern is you pray to God the Father through the Son in the Spirit. But this is at least one of the several instances where someone prays directly to Jesus in the New Testament, where Stephen says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And that story also kind of segues into the story of an infamous character called Saul of Tarsus who is a very bad hombre. He is very zealous for the traditions of his fathers. And he wants to shut this rogue messianic sect down. And he's willing to do that even to the point of using violence. He believes that taking out these uh, messianic fanatics and those pseudo-messiah, he's doing God a favor. Uh, but then, as he's on the way to Damascus to do more of the same, uh, as they say, a funny thing happened on the road to Damascus. Uh, Saul meets the risen Jesus. And he utters those words, and who are you, Lord? And he says, and Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, at that point, Saul of Tarsus had to reconfigure some big cerebral furniture inside his head. He had to change who he thought Jesus was, who the early church was. In fact, he now had to identify the church he was persecuting with the very body of the exalted and risen Lord. And many of you know the story. He eventually ends up in Damascus, gets his sight back, and then becomes a great campaigner for the church. He then... Uh, 
on a long journey ends up in Jerusalem, they're a little bit cautious about this guy because he was once, you know, beating them up and throwing them into jail. Uh, but Barnabas, you know, the guy who's willing to give people a chance, accepts them into the fellowship. But then Paul, uh, effect- effectively, because he's causing a little bit of problem, or Saul as he's known, heads back to his home country of Cilicia and hangs out then. But while all this is going on, the spirit is active because the evangelist Philip is out there in Samaria evangelizing the Samaritans. There's also he's hanging out with the Philippian eunuch. And then over in uh, Cyprus and then in Antioch, some Greek-speaking Jews start evangelizing non-Jews and they decide to do a little bit of multicultural church planning. And so a multi-ethnic church is established in Antioch, one of the most important cities in the Eastern Roman Empire, and you've got Jews and Gentiles both believing in Jesus. It's so weird, the, Roman invi- the, Roman, the Romans there have to invent a new word to describe what is happening, and they call this group of Jews and Gentiles worshipping Jesus, they call them the Christianoi, from which we get the word Christians. And they send Barnabas up there from, from Jerusalem to check what the heck is going down in Antioch. And Barnabas says, the Holy Spirit is doing some radical ministry. But we need someone who can lead it. Someone who knows the law. Someone who is zealous. Someone who loves Jesus and someone who is not afraid. And Barnabas tells the Jerusalem leaders, better call Saul. So... <laughs> They go up to Cilicia and say, yo, Paul, we've got to do some salt. We've got to do some serious church planning in a multi-ethnic community. You speak Greek. You're pretty keen on Jesus. You know the Jewish world and the Greek world. Come and partner with me. So they go down to Antioch. It all happens. And as things progress, the Holy Spirit sets Paul and Barnabas apart for a new ministry. And they go to places like Cyprus and southern Asia Minor doing some evangelism and church planning and the like. Getting a lot of persecution, going fairly well, but again, this creates a little bit of a problem because some people are not happy with bringing these dirty, filthy, idolatrous, pork sandwich-eating Gentiles into fellowship with Jews. So what are we going to do about it? Well, how about we have one church for Jews and one church for Gentiles? And the people in Antioch saying, well, no, we're not going to do that. So they all get together in Jerusalem. So to make sure all they're all singing off the same sheet of gospel music. And Peter talks about his experiences with Cornelius and Caesarea. Paul and Barnabas and everyone talk about what's been happening in Antioch and their mission. And James says, okay, the Holy Spirit has told us what's happening. And that is God accepts Gentiles as Gentiles through faith in Christ. All we want to say is to the Gentiles, be respectful of Jews who are a bit sensitive to anything that reeks of idolatry or, or immorality. Okay, so don't eat. So don't eat any food if it's contaminated with idolatry. Don't do anything, you know, really ultra pagan. Kind of respect some Jewish scruples, which is good. And Paul continues his mission, but unfortunately, there's a little bit of a bust-up with Paul, John, Mark, and Barnabas, and they kind of part ways. And Paul's thinking, you know what? I think I might go up to northern Turkey, then head further east, maybe down to Armenia, cruise down by the rivers of Babylon. Uh, But the Holy Spirit says, no, I want you to jump across the Aegean, and I want you to go to Macedonia. 
And he has that vision of the man in Macedonia. So that's, that's where Paul ends up. That's where he goes. He goes into Macedonia and he starts doing some evangelistic work up in the north and working his way south all the way down. And this is where he establishes the churches in Thessalonica, Philippi, Corinth, and the like. Uh, Paul is doing that. He then kind of goes back to Turkey, spends a lot of time in emphasis, some three years doing further ministry, but then he feels the need to go back to Jerusalem. Now, we know from Paul's letters, this is to take the collection there for the saints, and he gets back to Jerusalem. James tells him, you know, Paul, we, lo- we love you, workman. Seriously, I mean, I, I love you, but there are some people here that don't. I mean, they're accusing you of doing things like, you know, not obey, teaching Jews not to obey the law and that type of thing. So why don't you do some sort of symbolic gesture to show that you're okay with the Jewish law and all the rumors about you aren't true? And he says, how about you pay for these guys to take a Nazarite veil? And Paul says, hey, no thing, all things to all people. That's, that's the name of my game. So he, he goes to do that, and then they see Paul in the temple with a couple of people, but then someone says, hey... I saw Paul earlier in the week hanging out with Gentiles. Paul is now in the temple. Obviously, he brought the Gentiles with him, and that leads to a big riot. I mean, seriously, it's like people running after the last ticket for a Taylor Swift concert. I mean, it's just absolute... Okay, that joke did not go down well. Um, (laughs) There's a big... Okay, tickets for the grand final. How about that? Last ticket for the grand final. So there's a, there's a big raucous, and the Romans have got to go in to rescue Paul, and eventually Paul ends up on the coast in the governor's residence being looked after there because a lot of people want to give him, want, want to get rid of him. Uh, Paul eventually appeals to the Roman uh, emperor to get him out of this. I mean, everyone seems to agree that he's effectively innocent. He gives his testimony to the Sanhedrin and then at the uh, court of the governor. And because he's appealed to Caesar, to Caesar he goes. And then through a very circuitous route, he goes there with all sorts of trials and shipwrecks, eventually gets in Rome. He he arrives in Rome in chapter 28, uh, where he's able to kind of, you know, speak to the Jewish community. They said, well, we haven't heard too much about you, but let us know what the issue is. And it's the same response as always. Some believe, but most are a a bit sceptical. And the story ends then with Paul in Rome faithfully teaching about the kingdom of God and the teachings of Jesus. So that, that, in a nutshell, is the basic plot, if you like, of the book of Acts. But what are some of the major themes then that we uh, come across along the way? And this, this, this is our last section. One thing you get across Acts, and, and certainly the Gospel of Luke, uh, is the concern for the poor and outcasts. Now, I, I don't know about this audience. Does anyone here know the motto of John West Tuner? What's, what's, does anyone here know? Anyone, anyone know what John West Tuner is? Does anyone? What's that? Yeah, but what makes John West the best? It's the fish, complete this phrase, it's the fish that John West rejects that makes John West the best. Yeah. Well, the good news of the gospel is Jesus accepts the fish that John West rejects. Okay? 
the lepers, the poor, the unclean, the Gentiles, the outsiders, the Collingwood supporters. It's, okay, I'm, I'm, okay, I'm going to stop, stop the humor at this point. It's clearly not working for me. Okay. In other words, there's this strong emphasis on God's love and compassion for the outsiders, and that is exemplified through Jesus and also through the early church. Okay. That's one of the big emphases. There's also a lot on the rigorous nature of discipleship. Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, lays down strenuous commands. I mean, you can read the Sermon on the Plain. The sort of, you know, come follow me. Or, or anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is, is unworthy of service in the kingdom of God. Jesus makes big demands of disciples. It's for followers, not for fans. And that's continued in the book of Acts. I mean, Paul says things like, through many trials and struggles, we must enter the kingdom of God. I mean, there's, there's martyrdoms in the book of Acts. Stephen... Um, uh, James, uh, the brother of John, son of Zebedee. Uh, you know, Paul gets a lot of persecutions as well. Uh, if you follow Christ, you're not going to be the most, real, the most popular person uh, in the city. Uh, there's also a lot that disciples are expected to do in terms of their ethics, in terms of their economics, in terms of the, the, the way they regulate and live their life. It requires a certain type of of discipline. We also see, uh, along with that, a big emphasis on the importance of prayer. I mean, Luke's Gospel and Acts has a surprising amount of material of prayer, either examples of people at prayer or, at, or teaching about prayer itself. And also, there's a lot about possessions. There's a lot of teaching about the dangers of wealth, the seduction of wealth and riches, how that can weigh people down, it can corrupt their desires, it can ruin their virtues. Now you see that in different ways, ranging from the parable of Lazarus, you know, the rich man and Lazarus in chapter 16, which compares this incredibly rich man and a, and, and, and a, a very poor man in a desolate state. And then you've got stories like uh, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, who, who made a great show of pretending to be more generous than they really were. But their duplicity and their deception, in fact, brought the very judgment of God. Uh, Luke's also got a lot on the role of women, both amongst Jesus' disciples and in the early church. Uh, we see women very prominent in the infancy narratives of Luke Gospels. You've got Mary in her Magnificat. You've got uh, Elizabeth. You've got the prophetess Anna. But also in the book of Acts as well, you've got people like women such as Lydia. Lydia, one of the first converts in all of Europe. Luke also stresses uh, how Israel's hopes are fulfilled in Jesus. You've got that promise and fulfillment element, which is very climactic in, in, in the final uh, resurrection story in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus taught them that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and enter his glory. And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them, the two travelers on the road to Emmaus, all the things concerning himself 
in the scriptures. And of course, Luke also emphasizes the identity of Jesus. Luke emphasizes Jesus' messianic identity. He is the, the messianic Lord, to use the language of Luke 2.11, but he is also uh, Lord and Messiah. So that's why Peter says, this Jesus, to the Jerusalemites, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made Lord and Messiah. So whatever you said about him, whatever you accused of him, Whatever you attributed to him, God has undone it and declared by raising him from the dead that he is the Messiah and Lord. There's also a lot on the Holy Spirit in the mission of the church. Uh, Luke, uh, I think we can fairly say, is the church's first Pentecostal theologian. He believes it's not just the apostles, it's the Holy Spirit working through them and often despite them, that is really driving the mission of the church. And it's, it's very, very interesting. When the Spirit comes upon people in Acts, they always preach the gospel. It says the Spirit of the Lord came upon Stephen, or Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit, or Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. One of the signs of people being filled with the Spirit, of a church being filled in the Spirit, is, is, is they kind of want to preach the gospel like they're filled with breath and they've got to let it out. Okay? And that, that's what tends to happen. Luke gives us a lot of accounts of the apostolic preaching of Jesus. So we see, I mean, how did the apostles preach, the, preach about Jesus? I mean, they couldn't go to John 3.16 because they hadn't written it yet. So we, we, we see how they preached the, the gospel. And they preached it largely from the Psalms. Okay? When they want to talk about the death of Jesus. Okay, they've got things like Psalm... Uh, Maybe Psalm 23 or more likely Isaiah 53. They want to talk about the resurrection. They go to Psalm 2. They want to talk about Jesus' uh, death and his descent to the dead. They go to Psalm 16. They want to talk about his exaltation. They go to Psalm 110. They largely did their preaching from the Psalter, from the book of Psalms. That's how you preach the gospel without the New Testament. Luke is also giving us the story of the Christian mission beginning in Jerusalem and how it spreads to non-Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles, Greeks, Romans, and the like. We hear the story of Paul's conversion, the beginning of his ministry, and we see also uh, the start of the church's difficult and contentious relationship with Jews and indeed with the Roman Empire. On the one hand, uh, Luke's gospel, I think, is very pro-Israel, uh, pro, uh, pro the Jewish people, but he recognizes the church does not have the best relationship with a lot of Jewish communities in Jerusalem and in the wider dispersion of Jews across the empire. And when it comes to the relationship to the empire as well, again, you get some people like Sergius Paulus, the Roman governor of Cyprus. Um, I mean, he comes to faith. He's very keen on Jesus. But at other places, the Roman governors, the Roman officials are morally indifferent, brutal, or corrupt. But I think uh, Acts, is, uh, Acts is the type of book you should read, I think, at least once a year. Because this is kind of where you get the origin story of the church. You know, we all love the backstory. I mean, how did Wolverine get his, 
you know, amazing powers. You know, we all want to know the backstory. Or maybe I want to know the backstory. We want to know the backstory. How did the church begin? And what, where do we get our theological and spiritual DNA from? And why do we pray the way we do? Why do we say the type of creeds that we do? Why do we listen to the type of sermons that we do? Why do we worship and with the kind of songs that we do? The book of Acts kind of explains where all of that came from. It shows us where it began and explains why the church made much of Jesus and why they took the gospel of Jesus to the very ends of the earth. And in the words of the great American philosopher, Forrest Gump, that is all I have to say about that. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, think we can do a Q&A. We're doing a Q&A? Yeah, yeah. So if people have questions for Mike, feel free just to put up your hand and I'm sure Mike will be delighted to answer. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's one of the, the, the many debates we have. How much is prescriptive, like we should all do this, and how much is just descriptive, like they did it? Like, I mean, they chose leaders by throwing dice. Um, if you ever have to hire a new minister, um, it's... Oh, sorry, over here. Yeah, if you ever, ever have to hire a new, a new you know, senior associate minister or youth minister, I don't know if I would recommend the throwing of dice, <laughs> kind of, you know, you'll put a whole bunch of names in the hat and say, you know... This is the will of the Lord, that type of a thing. Um, so some of it's descriptive. How much is it prescriptive? I think it's prescriptive if it keeps happening. I think the sharing of community goods was something that happened in Jerusalem because of an economic necessity. I mean, this is a world without a welfare system. You know, you can't just go... I mean, you know, people could do things like give alms and there was, you know, certain charitable ventures, but they didn't have a welfare system. So you really relied on networks of patronage or other sort of institutions to um, help you out. And the church, because they were, you know, not everyone's favorite cup of tea, they had to create their own welfare system internally, uh, if you like. So uh, it wasn't continued on. And, and you, you do get this kind of mix. People told to renounce everything and follow Jesus, and then other people who are expected to be uh, faithful wherever they are, irrespective of what possessions they have. So it seems to be more localised and situational rather than, well, this is how it is for all the time. I mean, the, the, other, the other story is, is in Acts 15 where uh, James writes to the Gentiles in Antioch and he tells them to abstain from eating meat with blood in it. Now, I just got back from dinner where I had a lovely steak and I had it medium because that's how I like my steak, and I, made it to the, I ate it to the glory of God, because I think James is writing with a specific set of concerns uh, about the use of meat and its association with idolatry in the pagan world. Okay, so most meat was, you know, had been sacrificed, offered in tables or consumed there, and the leftovers then sold on the market. He's worried about that type of stuff. I'm pretty sure the meat I got from the restaurant had not been offered to Dionysus or Osiris or you know, any pagan deity like that. So, so there, there's always debates about what's prescriptive and what's descriptive. But in the case of Acts 2, I, I think it's a descriptive. Unless your house is better than mine, 
then I'd be very happy for you to sell it, and we, or I could just move in with you. I mean, any other questions on Acts? I think. Okay, the, the question is, when, why did the apostles preach from the book of Psalms? I think it was a few things. It was what they, everyone was very familiar with. So the Psalms is the language of devotion, celebration, lament. It's something that would be uh, used, cited, and recalled in the family setting, the village setting, in the temple, in, you know, in various annual festivals as well. So it's something that, you know, that people would simply uh, know. And, and yet they see in the Psalms, I, I think, either a prophetic pattern or at least a type and a, or an example that explains who Jesus is. Okay? So they, they would argue such things like, uh, Psalm 16, where David says, do not allow my soul to go down to the pit and remain there. And I say, well, that can't apply to David because David is still dead. So he did go down to the place of death and he still is there. This must apply to someone who went beyond the bounds of death. So they, they could sit applying to Jesus. Or in, when they quote Psalm 2.6, you are my son, today I have begotten thee. They, they see this, the resurrection as the definitive proof of Jesus' divine sonship. So naturally they would apply Psalm 2.6 to him. Or when they see Jesus, Jesus ascending to be effectively co-enthroned with Israel's God, I mean, that recalls to their mind Psalm 110 verse 1. So that's why I think they went to the Psalter in their, their preaching of the gospel to their fellow Jews. Anything else in Acts? Yep, over here. Oh, I don't think they actually mention Spain in the book of Acts. That's from Paul's epistles. But Spain was a significant place. It was kind of the most western part of the Roman Empire. You've got that. You've got kind of like Morocco, and then you've got Africa all the way through into Libya and Egypt. And there's a good chance that Paul was planning uh, on going from like Jerusalem, you know, Greece, it, uh, Rome, then on to Spain, and then maybe coming back through Africa, maybe, maybe he was, was planned to loop through the whole Mediterranean. I mean, we don't. Well, I mean, we don't know for certain, but he, he never got around to doing it, unfortunately. But Spain was kind of like the the, the western rim of the Roman Empire. If Jerusalem and you know more around like Mesopotamia was the eastern edge of the Roman Empire, the other edge was uh, Spain. I mean, some people argue that maybe Isaiah sixty six which talks about you know, all the exiles coming back from the far places like Tarshish, which seems to be the Hebrew word for Spain. Maybe it's something to do with that biblical language from Isaiah 66. Yep. Yeah, the, the question pertains to uh, how you reconcile the biography of Paul in Acts with Paul's autobiographical statement in his epistles. What we get in Paul's epistles and in Luke's account of Acts are very kind of 
broad sketches. They're not like a um, Netflix documentary of kind of like a day-by-day -day breakdown of everything that they did. G I mean, generally they cohere because you get Paul being in Damascus, going back to Jerusalem, having a hard time. Then he disappears for a bit. He eventually ends up in Cilicia, which is like right on the border between Turkey and Syria. He eventually ends up there, but it, you know, he, he seems to have gone into Arabia for a number of years. But here's the thing, where is Arabia? Is Arabia like the you know, Saudi Arabia today? But also the Sinai Peninsula was also considered part of Arabia. So there's a few different places Paul could have ended up. Uh, the general outlines of, of, of Luke and Paul's epistles line up, but there's how you completely correspond some of the exact details. That the bit, that's the bit that's not always easy. Any other questions? Okay, fine. I mean, no questions about speaking in tongues, acts and spiritual gifts, anything like that? Okay, good. Well, that is, that is easy then. Well, thanks. It's, it's, it's been a pleasure.